The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we always have a few moments of silent prayer. We know that whenever, as believers, whenever we sin, we never are threatened with the loss of our salvation, but we do lose fellowship. We grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, Scripture says, and therefore we are to confess our sins in the privacy of our priesthood, silent prayer, to God the Father, and we are instantly forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness, from the known and the unknown sins, and from those remembered as well as those forgotten. They're all equally cleansed, and we are immediately restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can continue our spiritual advance. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity today to gather together in freedom to worship you, to study your word. We thank you for this nation, for its leaders. We thank you for the uh, victories that we have had so far in this war on terrorism, and there are many, many more to go. We pray that you would give those who are uh, have such hatred and animosity for this country, the, our enemies, that you would uh, cause them to make mistakes and Give our leaders and those uh, military forces that are on the ground and in the uh, area that they would have wisdom and skill to be able to root out our enemies and to find them and destroy them. Father, we pray for us here that as we study your word, we'd realize this is the highest priority in our lives. That of all the things that we do and all the things that we are involved in, there is nothing more important than our relationship with you. And our relationship with you is ultimately grounded in our understanding of you as you have revealed yourself in your word. Now, Father, we pray that as we study these things, you would help us to understand and put together these things. We'd be challenged in terms of our own spiritual life and application. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We've spent the last several weeks studying the 
cosmic system. That is part of a broader picture in terms of the angelic conflict, which we also spent time studying. And since we have, um, been, as we've gone through 1 John chapter 2, once we arrived to verse 14b, we took time out to do a seven or eight week sub-series on the angelic conflict. And then over the last three or four weeks, we looked at cosmic thinking specifically in relationship to one of its modern manifestations, postmodernism. It's important for believers to understand uh, the thinking of our age. That's, uh, that's crucial to understanding uh, spiritual warfare and to being involved in spiritual warfare in the church age. Now, let's stop a minute and pick up our context in 1 John. We've been taking, doing these sub-series in order to give greater understanding and meaning to what John says in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Obviously, what he says here is so uh, short and uh, abbreviated compared to the doctrines that he mentions. He must have spent quite a bit of time teaching the congregation in Ephesus about these doctrines so that he does not have to spend a lot of time developing them as he does in Romans, developing the doctrine of justification in Romans 3 and 4 or the doctrine of reconciliation in Romans 5 or sanctification in Romans 6 through 8. He takes lengthy uh, periods of time to cover those things. But here John just touches on these crucial doctrines. So it was necessary to step back and take a look at the entire panorama of the Word of God and what it taught on those doctrines so that we could uh, read these three verses with some meaning and some depth of understanding. Well, let's take a minute and remind ourselves of where we are in the overall structure of John, of the Gospel, I mean of the first epistle of John. We had an introduction and a sort of a prologue in one one through one four, which set forth the issues about the testimony of John specifically and the apostolic body secondarily, and their witness and testimony on the full deity and true humanity of Jesus Christ. Because a problem had come along that the false teachers were saying, influenced by what was known at that time as docetism, which was a uh, early form of Gnosticism that Jesus Christ didn't really appear physically in the flesh. Uh, they had a dualistic view of reality, which meant that um, uh, that matter was evil and that the spirit was that which was good. And so, if Jesus Christ were God, he could never, uh, by definition, become true physical humanity. And so, they were in, in effect denying the incarnation. If you deny the Incarnation, then that is a subtle attack on the spiritual life because it was during the Incarnation that Jesus Christ established the precedence for the spiritual life of the church age. So the spiritual life that you and I have is a life that was modeled, a life that was pioneered, as a matter of fact, by our Lord Jesus Christ during the first advent during the time of the hypostatic union. So if Jesus didn't really live as a man and solve problems as a man and face the temptations of sin as a human being and have victory over the temptations of sin, have victory over the tests of life, then he did not 
really pioneer our spiritual life. So the subtle issue here is not just the, the deity and humanity of Christ. It has to do with the spiritual life, the life of abiding with God, which is John's term for talking about uh, fellowship. And so he moves from the introductory prologue in the first four verses to a introduction emphasizing fellowship and what fellowship consists of. Verse 5, he said, This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So there he introduces fellowship, but that's the last time we see the word fellowship. From this point on, he talks about abiding. And we understand that um, after that in verse 9, that the way to recover fellowship is through confession of sin. Now, 1.5 down to 2.2 2 talks about the, how the believer maintains fellowship and recovers from fellowship in terms of confession of sin. And then starting in chapter 2, verse 3, down to 2.11, the emphasis was on the characteristics of the believer that is abiding. It's not simply having fellowship as mentioned in 1.6 and 7, but it is abiding. The Greek word there is meno, which means to continuously stay in that state of fellowship. It's not just a matter of uh, being in fellowship. We use that terminology, in fellowship and out of fellowship. Yet if we look at how John talks about it, it says that if we claim we have fellowship, verse 6, and then in verse 7 he says, uh, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship. Fellowship is a possession. It is not just a status of being in fellowship or right relationship with God, but it is something that we have. It's, it's something that is, is mutually beneficial in our relationship with the Lord. It is something that, that we benefit from His grace and His blessing in that ongoing relationship. And it's not just getting there, it is staying there. You know, too often Christians start, once they recognize that, oh, if I, if I sin, I can recover through confession of sin, so I'll just sin and then I'll confess it. And we start to rationalize sin because we can be so, it appears to us, so easily forgiven by simply confessing our sins that we forget that, that the issue is not recovery. The issue is not needing to recover. The issue is abiding, not getting back into fellowship. The issue is staying in fellowship, not uh, being able to... Uh, recover our spiritual life. So we have to stay in fellowship, and that's the emphasis on abiding. And it's the one who stays in fellowship is the one who grows, because it's only in the status of abiding that the Holy Spirit is able to work to produce maturity. If we're so busy getting in and out of fellowship, there's not enough time in fellowship, not enough time enjoying fellowship, not enough time abiding for the Holy Spirit to produce fruit. That's a problem that baby believers have. They're constantly bouncing back and forth in and out of fellowship, and it takes time for them to grow. But after a while, they finally begin to learn that the issue isn't getting back in fellowship. The issue is staying in fellowship and having fellowship as a present reality. When that happens, there is marked growth. We covered that in 2.3 down to 11. And it's characterized by obedience. Verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him. And the term come to know him, as we studied it at that point, wasn't about salvation. Because Jesus had talked to Philip in the upper room and said, Philip, you have come to know me. 
how, how is it that, that, that you have been with me all this time, but you haven't come to know me? And here Philip was saved, but he didn't know Jesus. And see, too often we think knowing Jesus equals salvation, and knowing Jesus comes only after we've spent a lot of time in the Word and have enjoyed fellowship with the Lord over a period of time. We can't know the Lord apart from His Word. So John says, by this we know that we have come to know Him, that is, advanced spiritually, if we keep His commandments, so that the knowledge of the Lord is, is evidenced in our lives by obedience. Not only that, it says, uh, he says in verse 6, the one who says he abides in him, and notice there he's shifting to the terminology of abide, staying in fellowship, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. The one who, who abides walks as Jesus walked. And, of course, Jesus walked in the light. Jesus enjoyed that ongoing fellowship, and that was evidenced by the fact that he did, he kept the Lord's Commandments. He did the will of the Lord in his life, even when there was the test to avoid going to the cross. He said, Father, not my will, but thine be done. He was going to do the will of the Father, which was exemplified through God's plan for his life, which was to go to the cross, and there he was to die as a substitute for our sins. Now, the highest expression of the advancing believer is not only a knowledge of the Lord and keeping commandments, but then it's expressed as you advance to maturity in terms of personal love for God on the one hand and impersonal love or unconditional love for all mankind. We use the term unconditional to express the fact that it's not based on conditions. We don't say, well, I'm going to love you, treat you well, show you gentleness, kindness, good manners, whatever, uh, when you behave a certain way, even if you're even if you're obnoxious, even if you're rude, even if you are completely out of line and hostile and antagonistic to me, I'm not going to treat you on the basis of who you are and what you do. I'm going to treat you on the basis of who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That's the the unconditional aspect. We're not placing conditions on people and say you do the, you live the way I think you ought to live, act the way I think you ought to live. Dress the way I think you ought to dress, and then I'll be nice to you. You know, we treat them in kindness and gentleness and goodness, and it's irrelevant who and what they are. That's the unconditional aspect. The impersonal aspect emphasizes the fact that uh, personal knowledge and relationship is not necessary. We behave that way towards people uh, on the highway in another car whom we don't know. We exercise good manners on the, on the highway. We exercise... Uh, kindness and gentleness to people we don't know. We don't have to know them to be good and kind to them. And that's the emphasis of impersonal love. And if we don't do that, verse 11 characterizes that as the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He's out of fellowship and he's walking in darkness. Now, verse 12 shifts gears again. Now we're going to introduce the main themes of First John, starting in 2.12. And here he begins to uh, focus in on the issues in the spiritual life. He's going to talk about, he's going to use four different words to talk about people in the congregation. The first word is technion, technion in verse 1, little children. It's a diminutive term. It refers to the entire congregation and without regard to their spiritual advance. 
Then in verse 13, he's going to talk about three groups of people. Fathers, young men, and children. These are different stages of maturity. The fathers are the mature believers. The young men are the adolescent believers. And the children, the paideia, are the infants. He uses the term paideia in verse 13, which is a summary of these three groups. And then in verse 14, he begins to talk to each group in a little uh, more detail. He talks about the fathers and says the same thing about the fathers in 14 as he does in 13. They have hit spiritual maturity, so he has little to say to them of either a corrective or encouraging um, manner other than, I am writing to you because you have come to know him who was from the beginning. They have reached that stage where they have intimate relationship with God the Father. They have come to know him. But then he addresses the adolescent believers in four, from 14b to 17. That's where we are. That's the context. And then in verse 18, he's going to start talking to the baby believers. But today we're going to wrap up and conclude what he, has, what he is saying in his address to the adolescent believers. Now, there's another way in which we have looked at this. We look at it from the reverse order of John. John starts with the mature and goes to the immature. But we look at this in terms of the advance in, in, in the believer's life in terms of using the spiritual skills or the problem-solving devices. There are four or five in the spiritual childhood. It begins with learning to confess sins and moving to the uh, filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. That's the foundation. Every time we confess our sins, when we're back in fellowship, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. But filling with the Holy Spirit has to do with learning doctrine. But filling of the Holy Spirit has to do more with a status or relationship whereby we're in, by being in fellowship, God the Holy Spirit teaches us His Word, but the walking by the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.16, emphasize that ongoing process. Notice, walking by the Holy Spirit and abiding in Christ emphasize the staying in fellowship aspect and continuous obedience. Now, that's the foundation. Then we build on that. We build on that with three skills, the faith rest drill, learning to trust God, mixing our faith with the promises of God, and applying doctrine, trusting God in times of crisis. We realize that Jesus Christ has done everything for us, Second Peter 1, 3, and 4. And so we begin to trust God in every, each and every situation. We begin to learn about the grace of God, and we begin to realize that it's not based on who and what I am or who and what you are. It's based on who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And everything else in life flows from an understanding of grace. If we don't understand grace as believers, we're not going to get very far in our advance. And the problem is so many churches are so caught up with legalism and worrying about how everybody else is doing and whether or not they're having their morning devotions and whether or not they're memorizing Scripture and whether or not they're coming to prayer meeting and all of the other things that, uh, and how much they're giving that what happens is they're, they're so caught up with these legalistic externals that no growth takes place. There's just a lot of religious activity. There are a lot of programs, but there's no real in-depth spiritual advance because they don't understand grace. Second Peter 3.18 says that we grow by means of the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are 
our problem-solving devices are stress busters four and five, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. Now we'll get to that more next in the next few weeks as we get into John's section on spiritual childhood. But the spiritual adolescence issue deals with our, the, the spiritual adolescence stage, the Nanisqoi believer, focuses on a personal sense of our eternal destiny. Romans 8, 16 through 17. We learn that we are going somewhere. We have a destiny in the millennial kingdom. We have a destiny in eternity. We are being trained for that today. And that will become evident at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. So in order to reach this stage, we have to have a certain level of advance and a certain level of victory. And that is expressed in the second half of verse 14. John says, I'm writing to you young men, the Neoniscoi, because the Word of God abides in you. That's doctrinal orientation. The Word of God continually has a relationship with you. You have made it your priority, so you've gotten past these initial struggles and and, uh, problems in the uh, spiritual infants trying to figure out where your priorities lie. You know, we see this all the time around here. You see folks who drift in and and they start showing up maybe on Sunday. And then all of a sudden, sometimes it takes them uh, six months. Sometimes it takes them six years. Some of you are still wondering if you're ever going to get to this point. And uh, you wake up and you go, wait, wait a minute. This isn't just something I do on Sunday. This, he, he really means this is supposed to be my life. That Bible doctrine is your life. Your relationship with your, the Lord is your life. It's, it's not uh, your job. It's not your education. It's not the books you enjoy reading. It's not your hobbies. It's not your friends and family. It's not trying to get ahead in the world. Your life is the Word of God. Your life is Bible doctrine. And suddenly you realize that if Bible doctrine isn't the highest priority in your life, then you're going to arrange every in your schedule so that you can be here every time the doors are open so that you can uh, get the tapes and listen to the tapes over and over again. I'm always amazed sometimes. You know, it's, as a pastor teacher, you don't know. It's, the, it's like what we've been studying in Ruth, you, you, the invisible providential hand of God. I mean, I just take the Scriptures and teach them week by week and go through things. And, and every now and then, even as a pastor, you... you you know, when I teach things for the what I consider to be the umpteenth time, and uh, it, it gets a little boring and repetitious for me sometimes, and I think, well, I want to go on and do something else. We uh, had an example of this recently where we hit this section, and I thought, well, when he's talking about being strong in the Lord and abiding and overcoming the evil one, that involves the some level of tactical victory in the angelic conflict to overcome the evil one. So I need to really back off. I've never really taught that, and I need to teach that. And it wasn't something that's not a subject that's one of my favorites because, as most of you know, I've written a book on it. I'm just writing a section in a systematic theology on it. When I go to Russia next uh, or go to Ukraine next month, I'm supposed to teach on it. Uh, it, It's not, and it's not my favorite subject, but I just had to hit it again and again and again. So I taught on the angelic conflict. And it wasn't really something that, that 
gave me a lot of excitement. Oh, I just can't wait to teach. I, I just couldn't wait to teach on postmodernism, but angelic conflict. No, I don't want to do. I'm tired of that. Um, so I did it, and a guy called me the other day and said, "Boy, you really hit some home runs on that angelic conflict series you just did." I passed been passing the tapes out to a number of people, and it was just what they needed, and came at the right time. So I just have no idea how God uh, is using some of this and how it seems to hit home with people at different times. I just uh, teach what um, teach through the book verse by verse, and the Holy Spirit is the one who's working behind the scenes, uh, leading me in certain directions to teach things. And I had another uh, email came in from a from a young man who's going to Biola. And he's really excited about tapes, but he had ordered the tapes on church history. And he commented to me how much he enjoyed them. He just had to take a church history class at, at school this last semester. And he said, I listened to the fourth and fifth tapes at least 20 times each. So you can listen to these tapes, and I design what I teach in such a way that you're not going to get it all the first time. And it gives you an opportunity to go back and listen to the tapes over and over again. So when, do, when you wake up one day and discover that doctrine's your highest priority and that nothing else matters, you realize you have to get doctrine every single day. That doesn't mean you have to listen to a whole tape every day. Sometimes that's not possible depending on circumstances. But everybody can, uh, either on their way to work, on their way home, while they're getting dressed in the morning, uh, while they're eating lunch, somewhere arranged where they can pop a tape in and get 15 or 20 minutes of it today, another 15 or 20 minutes tomorrow. But you begin to realize you have to think biblically. And that is the highest priority, and that doesn't just happen overnight. And that's what's happened with these believers is they've reached spiritual adolescence because doctrine's the number one priority, and therefore they are doctrinally oriented. The Word of God abides in them. And uh, first of all, they're strong. They're strong. We saw that that term related to understanding that it was God's power and not our power. So that's grace orientation. So they're oriented to grace. They're oriented to doctrine. And they've overcome the evil one. It is Satan who seeks to distract us. He has two major uh, tactical objectives in, in in the church age. The first is to prevent unbelievers from understanding and responding to the gospel. So 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that he, as the God of this age, is seeking to blind the minds. Notice it has to do with thinking. To blind the minds of the unbeliever. And then secondly, once you become a believer, he is out there to distract you from making doctrine the number one priority. So because they have uh, made, they've understood grace, and they've made doctrine a priority, in that combination they have overcome the evil one. They have advanced beyond spiritual childhood to spiritual adolescence, and now they are, they are wrestling with their eternal priorities. At, at spiritual adolescence, we are learning that every decision we make today affects and will have an impact on our eternal life in heaven, not where we are, but how we are in the eternal state and in the millennial kingdom. Uh, the decisions we make today determine what we will be like in the millennial kingdom and in eternity. And so that is the struggle. And they are, and the struggle there is to get past the distraction of cosmic thinking. That is why we have, after he gives the positive encouragement 
uh, in verse 14, he shifts to the negative in verse 15. And in verse 15, he commands, Do not love the world or stop loving the world. Both translations are possible. And depending on your particular circumstance, either one could, could be true. I think he's primarily stating a general negative principle that the believer is not to love the world, not to be attracted to the cosmic system, nor the things that are in the cosmic system. So there's two things that he emphasizes there, and we did our study of the cosmic system and saw that it is primarily a way of thinking about life. It includes all the values of, of any culture, the things that are attractive to people in the culture, everything from uh, fashion, how to dress, how to talk, what to watch on television, movies. Uh, everything has to do with uh, aspects of the cosmic thinking. It, it moves from sophisticated to unsophisticated ways of thinking. And over the course of time, we keep looking at different manifestations of cosmic thinking in the world today. But it is not only the, the realm of thought, as we looked at last time, in terms of modernism and postmodernism, but also the things in the world. See, when you look at life from, a, from the world's perspective, you're going to emphasize the details of life. And depending on where you are, the stage of your life, uh, depending on your educational background, number of other factors, the things that your peers are going to emphasize as valuable in the world are going to differ. When you're at one stage in life, it may be education. It may be getting a good job. It may be getting the right kind of uh, perks and benefits at work. It may be all, certain trappings of success in terms of what kind of car you drive, what kind of house you live in, uh, what kind of clothes you wear. Those are just different manifestations. Those are the things in the world, the details of life that are that are emphasized, and um, so Paul, uh, John says, "Don't love or stop loving the cosmic system, as well as the things that are in the cosmic system, the things that the cosmic system uh, emphasizes as a high priority. Do not love them." And then he. Uh, gives his final statement in that verse. It's a third-class condition, meaning that it's possible for any believer to love the world. He says, if anyone. Third-class condition, condition means that maybe you will, maybe you won't. At some point in time, you, this probably characterized you. And then as you advanced in your understanding of doctrine and application of doctrine, you began to realize this was a problem. And so you began to uh, put your attention more on doctrine than the cosmic system. But he says, if anyone loves the world, and it's clearly possible for a believer to love the world, he says the love of the Father is not in him. So it is possible for the believer to stay in spiritual infancy because not only is he continuing to walk on the basis of his sin nature, but he is continuing to let the unsaved, unbelieving world culture around him dictate his value system, his priorities, how he spends his time, how he spends his money, and what his values are. So that's the person who loves the world. And John says, if you do, if you continue in that state, the love of the Father is not in him. See, earlier he said, if we love the Father, if we've come to know him, we love him. If we love him, then we keep his commandments. So the person who doesn't love the Father 
doesn't keep his commandments. And one of the reasons he doesn't keep his commandments is because he's letting the cosmic system distract him. James says almost the same thing in James 4.4. He just uh, blasts the congregation he's writing to and calls them adulteresses. Not because they're committing physical adultery, but the word adultery often has a, uh, a deeper meaning. I think the root concept in Moikea, the word for adultery, is not a physical act of sexual adultery. And adultery is the act of, of where one of the parties is married but to somebody else. The root idea is unfaithfulness, covenant disloyalty. Covenant unfaithfulness, because again and again the word is applied to those who are spiritual adulteresses. And they're in spiritual adultery because they are unfaithful to God who has saved them. They've entered into a relationship with God, but now they're unfaithful to Him. They're worshiping some aspect of the creation as God, whether it's some detail of life, success, money, uh, family, friends, advancement, prestige, honor, whatever it might be. They're emphasizing that and they're worshiping that instead of God. And so there is the love for the world and that is uh, spiritual adultery. And James says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. He said, if you're attracted to the world and to cosmic thinking and to all the trappings of the cosmic system, that is hostility towards God. It's either one or the other. You're either hostile towards God or you're hostile to the world. You can't be both. You can't have one foot in each camp and be uh, just a little bit attracted to cosmic thinking and cosmic priorities and value system, and then uh, the next day try to be a little bit more in love with the Lord. There's, they're, they're mutually exclusive. James says, do you not know that friendship with the world, with the cosmic system, is enmity towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's the position of so many believers who are absolute failures and will guarantee that they will continue to be failures in the spiritual life. It's because they don't want to learn how to disengage from the cosmic system because that involves thinking. It involves self-analysis in the realm of thought. And that means you have to be taking in the Word of God. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to the cosmic system, to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. A key verse on this is in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10. Hold your place in First John and turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 3. Paul says, Though we walk in the flesh, walk is a metaphor for lifestyle, conducting our lifestyle. The, the whole panorama of life comes under the metaphor of walking. We walk in the flesh. That is, we as believers live in the flesh. We're living in the body. This is the use of the term sarks that does not have a moral connotation. It's talking about the physical home of the body. We walk in, we live in the body, but we do not war according to the flesh. See, there he shifts his use. Flesh is a term for, used for the sin nature. Now, I want to skip past this slide to the next one, which is the sin nature. Let's understand the sin nature. 
Here we have our diagram. The sin nature is motivated by lust patterns. Now, the sin nature has two areas. An area of strength that produces human good and an area of weakness that produces personal sins. It's an area of weakness because that's where we're easily tempted. That's where we easily succumb to temptation. And we may manifest it in various different ways. Some people are prone to certain overt sins. Some are prone to more mental attitude sins. Some are prone to arrogance and look down their nose at those who are uh, have weaknesses in the area of overt sins. And they're just as out of fellowship as the other person. See, we can't judge anybody else because we all have different areas of weakness. Some are prone towards one thing, some prone to another. And we all have different areas of strength. And those are the areas where we easily resist sin and we produce good works. Even unbelievers do good things. Over the course of life, you may meet, may have the privilege of meeting many unbelievers who are honorable people, who have a, a measure of integrity by human standards, and are, 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 their, their, their company is pleasurable. It's fun to be with them. You can talk with them about many different things. You can learn some things from them. They are wonderful individuals. They're productive. They contribute to society. They help out. They do many wonderful things, but they're not, they're not believers. It's all human good, and it's all produced by the sin nature. So the sin nature generates human good, and human, one aspect of human good are problem-solving techniques in life, ways to handle life's problems apart from the Word of God. They're good ways. They work to some degree. They make people functional. Uh, psychology, secular psychology, is one aspect of that. It seems to work. It, it, it does good things for some people, solves their problems, at least in a temporary manner. That is all human good. That is those are ways in which we walk, that is, live our life according to the flesh. We are, that's what Paul's talking about in verse uh, 3. We do not war, that is, we're not engaged in the spiritual life and spiritual combat according to the techniques of the flesh. You know, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. You don't fight the battle with the wrong tools, with the wrong methodology, with the wrong techniques. It may seem to work. It may give a, a, a measure of success, but it's still wrong. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. A wrong thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And a uh, wrong thing done in a right way is wrong. It's only when it's a right thing done in a right way that it's right. And so Paul says we're involved in spiritual warfare but we have to do it God's way. We don't just go out on the basis of our experience and try to uh, defeat Satan or defeat the sin nature and have success in the spiritual life. God tells us exactly how to do it. See, this is the problem with some churches. They get involved in, in these, um, these exorcism activities. They call them deliverance ministries where they're casting demons out of Christians and they don't realize that Christians cannot be demon-possessed. There are numerous scriptures that teach about the fact that we are kept from the evil one. And we'll get there in 1 John. There's a passage at the end of 1 John which says that the evil one cannot touch us. And the word in the Greek there for touching means that to touch with the intent to do harm. And so we're told that the evil one can't even touch us because we are protected. So we, you, you see these churches who get involved and they, they miss 
uh, represent spiritual warfare as battles where Christians are engaging immaterial spirits. And the Bible completely prohibits that. We are involved in a warfare, but when it comes to dealing with demonic forces or Satan, we are to resist the devil. And that term in the Greek is anthistemi, which means to stand firm, to stand your ground. And you, you can't see what's going on in the spiritual realm, and I can't either. And the only way we can handle that is to let the Lord handle it. We just relax and remember that the battle is the Lord's, and we claim the promises that we are to be strong in the Lord and let Him do the battle, and we just relax and learn doctrine and apply it, and that's it. So we have to war according to uh, the principles of the Word and not according to the flesh. And then in verse 4, Paul says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. See, the methodologies and the approach of what comes across in most, uh, most of these uh, spiritual warfare conferences and churches who are teaching people to, to cast out demons and deliver people and all that, that's, that has more to do with magic, magic, spiritism, and uh, witchcraft. In fact, I have uh, a friend of mine who was very involved in the occult before... Uh, she was saved, and she made the comment one time when she went into one of these churches. Uh, she had never been in one of these churches before. When she came out, she said, you know, there was more demonic activity in that church on the part of the staff than I've seen in most witchcraft meetings. And we see what happens is most of these people are involved in trying to defeat Satan using Satan's tools. Those are weapons according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Now, he's using a metaphor here. This is not some kind of special spiritual uh, term. He d- explains what he means. What are these fortresses? What are these fortifications? See, we all have fortifications in our thinking. We have all erected walls around certain aspects of our thinking that we think are impregnable to assault by God because we're real comfortable uh, with those Uh, with that type of thinking. And that type of thinking has to be destroyed, and that's what Paul says in verse 5. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing. Now, those aren't spirits. See, there's this this thing coming along today where they want to interpret that. These are different kinds of spirits. These aren't. This is thought. Speculation is thought that is apart from the Word of God. We are destroying speculations, Darwinism, Evolution, postmodern philosophies, those are speculations. Kantian philosophy, that's speculation. Uh, Kierkegaardian existentialism, that's speculation. See, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. See, whatever's raised up against the knowledge of God has to be comparable. It is also a form of thought, it's knowledge. We're destroying one type of knowledge that is raised up in antithesis to the knowledge of God. This is a, a, a objective genitive knowledge about God, which is Bible doctrine. And what's our response? We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That means everything we think, all of our values, all of our priorities, the way in which we think, how we think, all of that has to come under the authority of Scripture. So we have to completely transform our thinking. And the only way to do that is to become continuously exposed to the teaching of God's Word day in and day out so we can re-educate ourselves according to 
biblical thought and not the thinking of the world, which we grew up with, which we were, which was inculcated into us by parents, family, friends, uh, peers, educators. Oh, they thought they were doing a wonderful job, but see, they were coming at it from the world's viewpoint and not from a biblical viewpoint. So John says, back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15b, he says, If anyone loves the cosmic system, that means they're going to put the cosmic system number one in priority. He says the love of the Father is not in him. And that is an objective genitive as well. And it should be translated, the love for the Father is not in him. If you really love God, then you're going to uh, distance yourself from the cosmic system, from cosmic thinking, and you're going to make doctrine the number one priority. People can't run around and say, oh, how I love Jesus, and show up at church at Sunday morning for a 30-minute sermonette for Christianettes and ever love God. It's got to be something that characterizes their life. It becomes the heartbeat of every decision they make. Make doctrine the number one priority. Then Paul goes on to explain with an explanatory gar particle in the Greek, verse 16, and which tells us that 16 is a further explanation of the principle. It says, for all that is in the world. See, why is it that you can't love the world? He said, because everything that is in the world. And then he gives an appositional phrase. Three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. It says, all that is in the world, and he characterizes it under these three phrases. Now, the first phrase, lust of the flesh, we might think automatically in terms of the sin nature. Because that, that phrase is very similar to the phrase Paul uses in Galatians 5.16. Walk by means of the Holy Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And there it's talking about the sin nature specifically. But that's clear from the context. Here, when, when Paul talks, I mean, when John talks about the lust of the flesh... Notice the context. He talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. These are three categories and three different ways in which the, the lust pattern, remember the core motivator of the sin nature is lust pattern. These are three ways in which the lust pattern is going to be appealed to by the cosmic system. This is what makes the cosmic system so dangerous. It just becomes a framework to provide justification and rationales to justify the um, you know, indulging our lust patterns. So the first category he mentions is uh, lust of the flesh. Now that's not the sin nature here. That has to do with lust that is related to our physical pleasure. This is a lust that's related to um, the material part of our nature. This would be include sexual lust, uh, physical Pleasure lust. Some people just make all their decisions based on how it makes me feel good physically. Physical pleasure lust, uh, chemical lust, drug lust, alcohol lust. People who who have to. Um, I'm not talking about prescription drugs, but people who are addicted to other kinds of drugs and use uh, marijuana. They use uh, heroin, cocaine. They use uppers and downers, whatever it is, in order to handle life and become addicted to those things. So that, uh, And you can become addicted as well to other uh, more legitimate prescribed drugs like Zoloft and Prozac and things like that. And if you're using those things to make life work apart from the Word of God, then you need to take a serious look at your spiritual life. 
because the spiritual life says that God has given the believer everything he needs to face any and every situation in life. And uh, too often today there are too many believers who are only experiencing the joy of the Christian life because their doctor gives them Prozac. And uh, the trouble with these you know, studies that are coming out that you need to investigate if you're on Prozac or Zoloft is that these have a, can have a permanent long-range effect on the way your brain functions. And so it may become impossible for you to ever function on your own if you take these drugs over an extended period of time. There's a lot that hasn't been studied yet, but there's a lot of questions that are being raised in the literature and yet too many people just blindly do whatever their doctor says because if I pop these two or three pills a day, everything's great and I feel better. These, these things appeal to lust. After the events of 9-11, the number of people that have uh, uh, been able to handle life now and handle the fear and the trauma of, of the events since then have been because they were able to go to their doctor and get tranquilizers. But that's not the spiritual life. That's not the kind of joy and happiness and stability the Lord provided. So that's one area. The lust of the flesh uh, has to do with the appeals to the physical, material part of our nature. The second part, oh, I left out gluttony. See, we always do that. The lust for food and, and food pleasure. Now, we handle life. We get a little depressed. Oh, I'm going to feel better. I'm just going to... Uh, go eat my favorite ice cream or my favorite pie or, or go eat a half a loaf of bread in order to, to, to make life work. Oh, we laugh because it's too true. That's all part of the lust of the flesh. Then there's the lust of the eyes. Desire to have what one does not have. Seeing uh, material things, seeing uh, possessions, seeing relationships perhaps, seeing another person. This can involve sexual lust as well. Where we look on something else, are things that other people have. It produces mental attitude, sins of jealousy and envy, desiring to have certain things, thinking that those details of life, if we just had them, then we would be happy. We would have stability. We would, we would have arrived. So the lust of the eyes has to do with um, putting our, basing our happiness on things that we do not have, on uh, details of life that we do not have. We, can, we seek happiness and meaning in life from things, from material possessions, from money lust, and from things that we see others have that we do not have. So the cosmic system appeals to the lust of the flesh, provides a rationale for, for material possessions as a source of happiness, for the lust of the eyes, for having other things. And the boastful pride of life, that's just the general arrogant tendency of every human being. We're born arrogant. We're born thinking we can make life work apart from God, independent from God. Every little baby that comes into the world within five seconds has his sin nature activated, and that orientation is towards personal autonomy and independence from God. And the cosmic system just provides an environment within which that sin nature can fully function. So we have the sin nature now that is appealed to by the world system. It has an area of weakness, an area of strength, and the lust patterns produce motivation in two directions. You see, there are some people who have certain lust patterns for approbation, for power lust, whatever it might be, that move people towards asceticism 
and legalism in the moral realm. They think that by giving up certain things and that by following a certain rigid moral code that that will impress God. In the intellectual realm, that is rationalism. Rationalism emphasizes uh, that aspect, that everything can have a, a, a rigorous, uh, rigorous explanation and meaning. But that can lead to moral degeneracy, just like the Pharisees when Jesus came. The opposite trend is towards licentiousness, lasciviousness, antinomianism, and in the intellectual realm, that is reflected in irrationalism and mysticism, complete disorder of thought and rejection of logic. That ultimately leads to immoral degeneracy, immoral degeneracy. So John says that all that is in the world, and this appositional phrase covers everything that the cosmic system appeals to, the lust of the flesh, the appeal to our material physical pleasures, lust of the eyes, that which we don't have and desire to have to make us uh, uh, happy and give us a meaningful life, boastful pride of life, the arrogance that we can make life work apart from the God. Apart from God, he says, these three things uh, make up the cosmic system. All that is in there is not from the source of the Father, but is from the world. All of that has its origin in the cosmic system, Satan's cosmic system, the cosmos diabolicus. And then he tells us why this is wrong. Verse 17. Verse 17. The reason it's wrong is because all of this is temporal. It's all going to disappear. That's why if we go back to our, back to the chart, that we looked at for the spiritual life, that's why it's spiritual adolescence. The issue is having an understanding of eternity, that we're making decisions today on the basis of their impact in eternity, not time. Why? Because the cosmic system is passing away. All this related to the details of life is temporal. It's all going to disappear. You may have momentary pleasure. It may make you feel good for a while. It may seem to solve your problems for a year or two. It may bring a measure of stability and happiness for maybe a decade or so. But sooner or later, you will wake up empty. It will no longer be able to, to, to anesthetize you to the real problems and issues in life. And those temporal details will disappear. The world is passing away. Everything in there is temporal and does not have any permanent value. So the adolescent believer has to learn to think in terms of the long-term impact of decision. So the cosmic system is passing away as well as its lusts. All of those details of life are temporal. They will all pass away. But in contrast to this, the one who does the will of God abides forever. And so this is talking about the next stage of spiritual adulthood. See, they have come to know him, and they are abiding with him. And so John is saying, if you're going to make it as uh, beyond spiritual adolescence, you have to get past the cosmic system, and then you will hit that stage where you are abiding continuously with the Lord. That doesn't mean you never get out of fellowship, but when you do, you bounce back quickly. You will stay in fellowship most of the time. It will be characterized by a love for God that motivates you to obedience to God. You will have happiness and stability in life no matter how horrible your circumstances might be. You will live above and beyond your circumstances because of your orientation to eternity and to God. And 
the one who abides forever, the one who is continuously in fellowship, does the will of God. That is application of doctrine. In contrast, we saw earlier to those who were those immature baby believers back uh, in, uh, who, who were uh, referred to back in three, verse 3 and 4 of this chapter, those who did not keep God's commandments, who did not know Him. So verse 17 ties this together, reminds us of what we've covered already in the chapter, that the one who is obedient to God keeps His commandments, as Jesus kept the commandments of the Father, did the will of God, abides forever. That means to stay in fellowship. This is someone, the, the advanced believer, the mature believer, stays in fellowship. And when they sin, they're out of fellowship for just a short amount of time. Now, next time we'll come back to verse 18, and we'll start looking at the characteristics of and the and the traps and problems uh, in the life of the immature believer, the spiritual child, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to be challenged with our own need to advance spiritually, whether we are spiritual adults or spiritual adolescents or in spiritual childhood, we need to be challenged to advance to the next stage. We need to recognize where the traps are and uh, the spiritual life, the stage of the spiritual life where we are now so that we can advance to spiritual maturity. Father, we pray for those here who are perhaps not saved, that They're just now realizing there is a greater dimension and that they need to have a relationship with you and that that can't be based on their own works or their own effort. They're uncertain if they have eternal life. They're unsure about the future. And, Father, all they need to do right now, right where they sit, is express their faith alone in Christ alone. They simply need to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Salvation is not a matter of what you do or what you have done or what you haven't done. Salvation is a matter of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. There he paid the penalty for every sin in human history. So the issue is no longer our sin. The issue is his work, whether or not we are going to accept that on our behalf. So right now, right where you sit, you can make your eternal destiny certain by simply saying, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Father, we thank you for the challenge of this to those of us who are believers that we are to press on to the high calling with which we have been called, to spiritual maturity, that we may glorify you both in time and in eternity. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.